With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, go to thedispatch.com to sign up for all our free stuff. And if you're so inclined, also you could sign up to be a paid member, which would be awesome. And you could actually find out what the fifth dentist has to say. Um, today's episode is brought to you by DoorDash. More about them in a little bit. Uh, so... I've become convinced after, particularly after long talks with uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher, that um, it is baked into the cake that America is going to become more hawkish towards China in the next five, ten years, two years, five minutes, whatever. Um, And so the question isn't whether or not we're going to be hawkish, but whether we're going to be smart or dumb about it. And um, our guest today I heard speak at an AI off-the-record event in Jackson Hole, and she kind of blew everybody away with everything that she knows about China. And she's my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, Oriana Mastro. Oriana, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you have to do some sort of full disclosure. Are you still also like an Air Force person who knows all sorts of cool stuff you're not allowed to tell us about? Uh, I am. Um, I uh, am in the process of switching jobs from being a China analyst at the Pentagon to moving into plans at Indopaycom in Hawaii. So it's very exciting. Um, but that does mean that I have to issue the disclaimer that all the views I'm about to express are my own and don't represent those of the U.S. government, the United States Air Force, or the Department of Defense. Very cool. So how, how often will you get to hang out in Hawaii? Um, about two months a year. Nice. Are they the right two months? Because it kind of matters. <laughs> well, I'm a special type of re- a reservist. I only work with active duty and I can do my time whenever I want to. So when I was at the Pentagon, I'd just show up one day a week. Now mm-hmm. that I have to make it all the way out to Hawaii, um, I kind of decide when I go to augment. So we're usually there around, you know, December, January. Weird. Now, what a strange yeah. coincidence. Yeah. Uh, now, my family has a place out in Hawaii. My wife's family has a place out in Hawaii. So I, I go to the big island every now and then. And it is such a pain in the butt to get to because it's, if you look at a map, it's farther away from anything, farther away from everything than anything else is far from anything. It's just all alone out there. It's real hard to get to from the East Coast. But anyway, um, so uh, why don't we start from the beginning? Do you agree with the proposition that hawkishness is sort of built in? baked into the cake at this point. And so the question is, what does that mean? Not whether we're going to be it. Uh, Yes and no. I mean, I don't like the term hawkish because it suggests some sort of 
bias, right, that is uh, detached from the reality of the situation. I would say, for example, that my views on China have evolved as Chinese behavior has changed. And so perhaps I uh, promoted more engagement and more reassurance types of policies maybe 10 years ago. And now I don't think those policies work. And so I'm promoting a little bit more of a a hard line against China, because I think that's actually what enhances deterrence. But so the Chinese call me hawkish um, and, <laughs> and maybe some other people do as well. But I think the bottom line is to be experts, analysts and scholars, our, our position should change based on the facts on the ground. No, that's fair. I mean, I, and that's sort of what I meant by, you know, when I, when I say smart hawkishness, I mean, actually dealing with the reality rather than right. sort of pandering to cable news audience or or for domestic consumption coming up with stuff that isn't actually in the the national security interest of the United States. Right. Um, but taking a hard line towards China seems to be required by the moment that we're in. Um, how do you sort of just give me a broad brushstroke picture of what is China's long-term vision about itself? How does that inform its foreign policy, how much of it is driven by domestic policy, take it wherever you want to go. But like, what does the normal educated person actually need to know about what China is up to? Well, the first thing I'll say is that we make a lot of assumptions about China based on our own experiences and especially our experiences with the Soviet Union and the Cold War. So what I'm about to tell you, I would say a lot of, especially generalists might disagree with, but it's based on my own interviews, interactions with Chinese, reading of their you know, military literature and doctrines, I'm pretty confident that this is their position right now. And that is, China believes its rightful place is to be dominant in Asia, to be the hegemon of Asia. And what that means to be the hegemon is not only to have political and economic influence, but also to be the number one military power. So in Asia, at least, they want the United States military presence to decrease. That I am very confident in. Now, that was kind of a controversial thing to say maybe 10 years ago. Now it's not so controversial. So I won't dwell on it. And I'll move to the second part, which I think is more controversial. I don't see any indications that China has those same ambitions globally. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't want to be a superpower. It doesn't mean that they don't want to have power and influence globally. But to date, it looks like they think they should rely primarily on political and economic influence to protect their overseas interests. Um, and they don't want to have this like global military footprint in which they're projecting power all over the world like the United States because they think that's an extremely costly uh, and inefficient way of doing business. So I often use the metaphor, you know, the United States, we do not lack ambition, but we did not seek a colonial empire like Great Britain because we had a different vision of the best way of building and exercising power. And China, too, has a different vision. In terms of domestic politics, it does matter, especially in terms of how they exercise their power. So actually, China wastes so much effort and resources just to get countries to not criticize what they do at home. I mean, this is something that the United States doesn't really do. I mean, imagine if we were going through healthcare reform, right, or social security reform, and our president spent all of his time telling countries, can you make a public statement that you agree with my policy on social security? I mean, we just, we just don't do that. So, right. so does their domestic politics and being an autocratic system does make it so they're very sensitive to overseas criticism. And so they waste a lot of their influence in shaping what other people say about them. 
In terms of how much the Chinese public, so the Chinese love to say like their hands are tied, you know, because the Chinese public cares about this issue or that issue. But, you know, in some cases, maybe, you know, Taiwan, for example, but things like the South China Sea, you know, the Chinese government chooses to publicize them in a certain way. And my position is always they can make the choice not to. So I don't think we should really cater to that kind of logic of like the government's hands are tied. They have to placate the domestic public. I think they're very good at shaping the narrative when they need to. So I have a friend who's also a China expert um, who once told me a long time ago that one of the things you have to keep in mind about China is that the Communist Party is almost as afraid of the people as the people are of the Communist Party. Mm. Um, and it, it when you say that they care so much about this, I mean, is it, it about manufacturing manu- or policing uh, consensus, as it were, about what they're doing? What what does that derive from? Is it uh, an insecurity about their own hold on power? Is it tied up in some sort of Chinese notion about face and respect? I mean, I, w- why do they feel it's necessary to do that when we don't? So the historical, this is based on a historical narrative that is also based in fact, which is not only the Communist Party, but dynasties in China's past have always collapsed when there has been this simultaneous eruption of uh, internal uh, instability and external pressure. So in their viewpoint, when you have outside countries pressuring China and you have problems internally, that's kind of the dangerous point. And that's why they are the most sensitive to other countries, you know, as they would say, you know, intervening in their internal affairs, because that is, in their mind, the key to the downfall of the Communist Party. It's not just one or the other. It has to be both at the same time. I would say, and this is also where maybe I diverge from other more traditional hawks, which is I don't really focus on the autocratic nature of the of, of China. I personally believe that their interests, you know, their desire to be number one in the region, for example, that would be the case even if they were a democracy. And in many cases, the autocratic nature, like their focus on, you know, getting countries just to say nice things about them, um, actually prohibits them from using power and resources in useful ways. So I think it would be wrong. Of course, there are so many problems with, you know, living in an unfree society. But I think we have to also understand that there's a different range of lack of freedom, right? In China, and not to be apologetic for the party, but people know what you do to get in trouble and how to stay out of trouble. It's not so arbitrary, maybe in some other countries. You know, you don't, it's not like disappearances on the street. You know, your dad doesn't come home and you're like, I have no idea why. You know, maybe, you know, he didn't say or do anything. I mean, for the most part, people who get in trouble know why they're getting in trouble. And so I think what that means is it allows society to continue uh, because there's more predictability than maybe in some other autocratic regimes. And I would just say that even though the Chinese people, you know, a lot of them obviously want to have more freedoms in some ways than others, the Communist Party has done a good job of improving their quality of life the past couple of decades. And the, the party has done a good job of convincing people that if we democratize, we're going to go the direction of places like Russia or some Eastern European countries, you know, you can be a democracy, but you can be completely unstable and poor, right? So I constantly have this debate with my Chinese colleagues in which, you know, they're like, the most important thing is economic freedom, you know, and as American, we think the most important thing is political freedom. Um, But I think it would just be wrong to think that there's, you know, billions of Chinese people whose like number one thing is they want to get rid of the Communist Party. There are a lot of people that benefit from that party 
uh, being in place. And those are kind of the richest, most influential people. So um, the, as, as you well know, uh, the bet that sort of elites in both parties, leaders in both parties, um, made in the United States in the, in the 90s or in the late 80s or however you want to put it, and then continually after that was that the theory was that economic freedom leads to political freedom. And uh, there were, just as there's sort of smart hawks and dumb hawks, there are smart versions of that argument and dumb versions of right. that argument. Right. Um, but I generally am still more in favor of that argument than a lot of people are. Um, I just think the people who said it was going to be easy or that it was guaranteed to work were wrong. Um, mm. uh, but I also don't think it's proven that it's wrong yet. You know, I mean, the, you can say it didn't work, but I think you kind of need an asterisk to say yet because the history still shows that when you get strong, large, vibrant middle classes, you know, this is how you get the French Revolution, how you get lots of things, they start pressing for their political rights in ways that um, become destabilizing to autocratic regimes. It's not guaranteed to happen, but that's, it, it's, it's not mm -hmm. foolish to look at history and say that's kind of how it worked for a lot of places. Do you think that, what do you think about that bet, for want of a better word, and do you think it has now been proven that it'll never happen that it didn't work or that it's just still too soon to tell? So the mechanisms that you laid out in terms of the middle class uh, demanding political freedoms, and that's the main pathway through which China would democratize, that's not going to happen. And, and yeah. there's sort of a number of reasons for that. I mean, the first is China also knows that history that you laid out. Right. So they so they thought long and hard about it. how do we avoid that? And Jiang Zemin, a previous leader of China, did something very bold and smart. He co-opted the middle class into the party. He allowed businessmen to be communists. And so they co-opted all these people. And now just, you know, all the people who are rich and powerful in China and even the middle class, you might say, OK, do they want democracy? Do they want hundreds of millions of peasants to decide their futures? Or do they want to be the one to decide their futures right. as party members? And so a lot of them really have a stake in keeping the system the way it is. If I had to place a bet, and like if, if we're assuming China does democratize, which I think um, is probably not likely um, given current trends, but if they were to, I think it would be a within party type of thing. Like the party would start holding elections within the Communist Party first um, and see how that goes kind of before they open it up broadly. But even even, you know, during Tiananmen. People weren't calling for multi-party democracy in general. The idea in China is that's a very messy system. And I don't think. Uh, the past couple of years with our elections, we've proven them wrong. Um, but they do want transparency, accountability, and they want elections and they want to say. So if I had to place my bets, I would say, you know, elections within the party versus a broader democratic effort. So um, if that's the case, um, what are the kinds of things that, look, I mean, I, I, I'm one of these people who thinks that would be a huge step forward if the Communist Party started having internal mm -hmm. elections, right? I mean, that is that is better than them not having internal elections. Um, and my own hunch would be, under those circumstances, that that's a hard genie to put back in the bottle. You know, if you, it's fine to say all the, all the party, the factions within the party are all part of one party, 
But in reality, they're going to be different parties, in a, at least in a sort of an elite theory kind of way. Um, so would that would that actually be in, first of all, would that be in our interest if they moved in that direction from a sort of cold Kissingerian analysis? Mm-hmm. And two, if, well, I mean, if it would be in our interest, is there any way for the United States or our allies to push it in that direction? So I think it depends how you define U.S. interests. If you're thinking about the broader U.S. interest of, you know, promoting freedom, democracy around the world, that, you know, we think other people deserve to to live in these types of societies, then yes, having more accountability within the party would be better for the average Chinese person. In terms of how China behaves on the international stage, I think it either is neutral or worse. Um, There's a lot of research that shows, especially during a period of democratization, when you have sort of immature new democracies, that for a variety of reasons, those countries tend to be more belligerent and war prone than other types of countries. And there's a lot of, you know, polling in China that shows, for example, that 89% of Chinese people in a recent poll said that they wanted armed reunification with Taiwan. Now, I think Xi Jinping knows that his military isn't ready for that, you know, and so he's being he's being smart and and trying to, you know, say we're not going to do that. And if you go to WeChat, some of the stuff that's censored is not criticism of the party. It's calling on the party to do more aggressive things than the party is willing to do. So my main concern is, you know, if you do have leaders in China that because of a process of de- of you know, becoming a democracy, they feel like they have to pander to some of these more hyper-nationalistic views, this is going to be worse for the United States um, and not better. Now, a lot of people, if you think, you know, Chinese behavior on the international stage is colored by the fact that you're that they're an autocracy, then maybe that that progress, you know, uh, would be beneficial. But I personally, you know, whether it is, you know, trying to have their own tech giants or, you know, trying to kick the United States out of the South China Sea, I mean, I don't really see how democracy would would change their views on that. I don't think they're going to see the United States as, you know, better. You know, you talk about the one myth in the United States, which was, you know, if we engage with them, they become richer, they become a democracy. I think a bigger uh, assumption that we don't voice as much is that people assumed that China would always be happy being number two, that we could convince China. We do, you know, we try all the time in our engagement with China to explain to them why they'd be better off being second to us. And you know, they don't buy it. And and if I were Chinese, I wouldn't buy it either. And so I think even as a democracy, they wouldn't want to play second fiddle to the United States. So, but that, that raises this interesting problem. Because so the, the thing, I mean, I, the, the thing I saw you speak at is off the record, but I don't think this violates any of those rules. You were on with uh, another of our colleagues, Leon Aaron, and you're talking about Russia versus China and all that. And it seems to me like, you know, one of the points I took away from that talk was, that um, Russia, for historic, geopolitical, internal reasons, all sorts of reasons, sees it in its interest to sort of blow up the international order, to de- destabilize right. Western democracies and, and international institutions and all that. And China doesn't see that because it actually benefits from stability and international institutions and all of that. So is it simply that they're just biding their time and that they're they're not actually committed to these institutions in any serious way. It's it's a tactical move rather than a a principled position. 
So on the institutions, it, for many, for most of China's history, they saw those institutions as a sign of U.S. hegemony. And so they refused to participate, right? And then in the 1990s, all of a sudden, after decades of refusing to participate, they join all these institutions immediately, like 80 or 90 of them in one year. And this was a huge, actually, boon for political scientists studying China to try to figure out, you know, what happened? You know, why was there this big change? Now, we really have to look into the details of this. You know, it is true that China, you know, benefits from these institutions. And what they basically decided was, this is a source of power. And we are we're squandering it. So let's not squander it. Let's sort of leverage it and either do a number of things. If the institution is in our benefit, like, you know, promoting free trade, then China wants to be a part of it, wants to support it. If the institution is not their benefit, like has something to do with human rights, then they want to be a part of it and control it in order to basically render it ineffective. Right. And then there are some institutions like U.S. alliances, which they do try to actively undermine. So I think there's sort of a spectrum of Chinese behavior, some that they support, some that they render ineffective, some that they're trying to co-op and some that they're trying to undermine. Um, and all of it is towards the same goal of sort of increasing their own power and influence in the international system. So do you think I mean, just what got me on this was when you're saying how they're they don't think they're ready to um Take Taiwan is right. is it all of their all that's keeping preventing them from taking Taiwan is getting their military capability ready to capable of taking Taiwan is that it yes I mean that's my view <laughs> so 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 I spend a lot of time the U S military is obsessed with cost of position right because mm -hmm. for decades our whole strategy has been you know in order to deter a country from doing something aggressive you clearly tell them it's going to cost them something. And that works with smaller countries or smaller powers. That does not work with a country like China, especially in issue areas that are so important to them. So I firmly believe if you told Xi Jinping, you could, you could have Taiwan tomorrow, but you'd lose your Navy, he'd be like, let's do this, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, there's no cost, you know, except I guess like, you know, the complete downfall of China, you know, nothing that we could actually um, do that, that would um, prevent them. So I often argue that we have to deter by denial, and that is basically making it impossible for them to succeed. I do believe that Xi Jinping, the main question he asks himself is, am I going to be successful? And if the answer to that is no, then he doesn't want to go. And with Taiwan, um, I wrote an op-ed in the LA Times in January that I started to get concerned in my discussions with Chinese military personnel that their views of their capabilities is shifting. Now, maybe they're wrong because experts like myself, we think it's probably 2025 is the earliest, probably 2028, before they would have the capability to launch an amphibious attack against Taiwan. But all the military people I talk to say this year, they're going to finalize their capabilities. So either they're right and they have the confidence. And I think even if they don't, attack Taiwan, this is going to lead to a more aggressive PRC posture overall vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan because they see that as an option. Um, and, you know, whether they're right or wrong doesn't really matter. What, what matters is what they believe. And so I'm starting to become concerned that Taiwan is going to be much more of a flashpoint than it has been in recent years. So what do we do about that? Well, again, I think one of the things that we overly focus on in deterrence is we talk about our willingness to fight. So historically, the reason why countries, you know, test the United States is they think we're unwilling to defend, right? Are we, are we willing to defend Taiwan or not? And of course, that's a part of the equation. But something new has happened, which I think is worse, which is uh, there's uncertainty about our capabilities, 
So right now, and I, I talked to you know a head Chinese military officer recently, and he's like, "Yeah, we're gonna go, we're gonna go take Taiwan." And I said, "Well, what if the United States intervenes? Because that used to be the determining factor. If the United States doesn't intervene, they don't, they they go. If it doesn't, if the United States does intervene, they do not go." And he was like, "We don't care. We'd win, right?" So at a certain point, it can't only be the credibility of our commitments to our allies. We also have to actually have the capabilities to successfully defend them. And as Chinese military modernization has continued to pace, right, and they have the most advanced cruise and ballistic missile program in the world, they now can hold U.S. assets in the region at risk. It's becoming questionable in certain scenarios whether or not we would actually prevail against China. And so I think that is actually a huge threat to our deterrent. And that's why we need to rethink our force posture in Asia to signal to China, you know, it's not going to work. Right now, they think maybe it would. So, I mean, uh, Mike Gallagher, he has this somewhat half-baked thing about um, the the sort of the um, Red Dawn strategy of giving Taiwan the ability itself to just be a much more, you know, not, not just in terms of direct military assistance, but sort of in asymmetric ways, making Taiwan just a really unpleasant pill to try and swallow. Um, is there stuff that we could do? I mean, presumably, if we're incapable of right. stopping China, there's almost nothing we could give to Taiwan short of a nuclear bomb that would make them capable of stopping China, right? I mean... And even and even that, I mean, just talk about strategic depth, right? Taiwan is an island. Who do you think has the escalatory advantage? China, a target sponge with hundreds of nuclear weapons or Taiwan with maybe, you know, one, you know, Mm -hmm. so so not to talk about like crazy scenarios, but I think you're absolutely right. You know, if the United States can't prevail. And this is with the with Taiwan. This is South China Sea, for example. We're Mm -hmm. always like, oh, we'll help build up partnership capacity with like the Philippines. It's like, if the United States can't do anything, you think the Philippines is going to be able to do something? Um, So I think what, you know, Mike is also alluding to is maybe the costs of repression. So there's a lot of research that shows that countries no longer want to occupy other places because the costs of repression uh, have have gone up. Um, I would just say that it's harder for a country like the United States to occupy because we have rules. Mm-hmm. and norms about things that makes right. it more difficult. You know, China, when it comes to like a Xinjiang or it came to Tibet, you know, they just roll in and, you know, they don't care if they put a million people in prison. So so I would be wary about, you know, being like, well, you know, you could you could have some fighters in Taiwan and they're among the population. You know, China would just get rid of everybody. It's a, it's a little bit different. So that doesn't mean we shouldn't try these things, right? Again, anything to increase doubt in the minds of the PRC but we shouldn't rely on them. So if I were one of my listeners in Taiwan right now, I would start drinking heavily. <laughs> I mean, uh, is there, I mean, so what? what is the best case scenario for, let, let's work on the assumption that it would be good for us to protect someone mm-hmm. that we said we're going to protect. Right. Um, it would also be good for us not to lose a lot of American blood and treasure doing it. Right. So what do we do to actually keep China from conquering, from from seizing Taiwan? Build, build up the Navy? Well, well the, no, actually, the most important thing is uh, warning. Mm-hmm. So 
if the United States does not get adequate warning, and we're talking about, you know, I can't give you the exact, you know, details, but, you know, we're talking about, you know, days, not really months here, but adequate warning that this is going to happen. China can take Taiwan before we can even start thinking about responding. And so this is why, you know, for people who are watching, you know, Chinese harassment of, of U.S., you know, surveillance ships, we do surveillance and reconnaissance in the region. And you might think like, I don't want to fight a war with China. Like, why don't we just stop doing this? The reason we do it is because we have to, we have to have the information about the Chinese military, but also their movements because we need that warning. So it really is like investment in an ISR, right? Intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. That's like, that's like number one. And then once we have the warning, you know, you could think about, I mean, that's a very expensive strategy, just sort of like planting the Navy in the Taiwan Strait. And other sort of strategies that I've heard since we're out of the INF Treaty, for example, now is, you know, placing enough ground-based missiles in Asia that we could just like rain those down on the Strait. And so, you know, they, that they can't get across. Um, and so I think that would, act, now everything has its downsides, right? If you rely mainly on those missiles, then you're more space reliant than you would be otherwise, you know, for targeting. So you have new vulnerabilities and such. But I think the good news is, at least in DOD, there's a recognition that there's some problems, that we have some vulnerabilities. And, you know, technology is a part of it, but also innovative operational concepts is another big part, right? The airplane was discovered long before it became useful in warfare. It's, you know, people also have to figure out how to use this stuff. So um, we just have to keep on thinking innovatively about, you know, how we're, you know, and, and constantly adapt as Chinese capabilities adapt. So let, let's... Um... Let's leave the poor Taiwanese to fend for, them, fend for themselves for the moment um, and switch to uh, Hong Kong. Is there mm. any hope for Hong Kong? What do you think we should be doing there? And, um, you know, and particularly, I would be curious what you think about starting to hand out visas to Hong Kongers who want to come here. I mean, I think we should absolutely do that. And that's that's less Oriana as like a China expert saying that and more, you know. Oriana is like a bleeding heart liberal saying that. Yeah. I guess like, you know, obviously I, I'm all for like much more open immigration policies. Um, that's how that's how we all got here. Um, and, you know, given given my background, you know, I, I look back at like, you know, the United States refusing to let Jews in, into the country during World War II as, you know, a, a very, very dark point in our history. So, yeah. you know, that's when the, when the UK announced that they were going to allow Hong Kongers to come in. Um, you know, what makes me think is like, that's, that's what the United States should do as a leader, right? We should be at the forefront of things like that. Now you ask, like, is there anything we can do? And, and this is not my area, but I, at least I know, uh, to listen to smart people who know more about this than I do. One of the things that uh, I recently heard from actually, um, someone in the Hong Kong legislature that resonated with me is, you know, he said, no, you you know, this is a sovereignty issue. So you're not going to be able to keep Beijing from doing certain things. But right. you might, you know, he said there's many ways to skin a cat. So you might be able to shape like how they do it, the severity. So like with this national security law in Hong Kong, you know, maybe we can't, you know, keep them from passing it. But 
how much they actually implement it, we might have an effect on it. So I do think it's worth trying and saying to, to China very clearly that these are going to be the costs of the, the action and follow through with those costs. And, and the benefit is at least China doesn't get to do whatever it wants without a cost, even if they go through with it. It might you know, change the direction to a degree that they decide to go so it's not as bad as it could have been. And I do think it's an important signal to the rest of the world that you know these are issues that the United States still cares about and we you know, still stand by our principles. So, I mean, before we were talking about, um, you know, if China were democratic, it would still want to do a lot of the things that um, China is doing for internal cultural reasons. And I, and I, I'm very sympathetic to that argument in part because it seems to me that the whole debate gets skewed to a certain extent by just even using the word communist anymore, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it seems to me it's China is an authoritarian nationalist country that, you know, as sort of almost incantation pays lip service yeah. to some communist stuff. I mean, the best example of this is actually, it's a point I made for years about North Korea, which is that, you know, North Korea doesn't even bother with the Marxist jargon anymore. They've just basically invented a, you know, it's not the divine right of kings, this is the divine right of Kim's. And it's it's would be recognizable to somebody from a thousand years ago as essentially a monarchy, an, an absolutist monarchy of a kind. Right. But you know, it even has serfs and different castes and all of these different things. But so, so I'm very sympathetic to that argument about China basically having bigger reasons than just some elite orthodoxy among a, a, the cadres of the Communist Party. At the same time, what is it about this sort of general attitude of the Chinese that makes them think that they need to do this in Hong Kong in the first place? Because, I mean, if, if it's about getting wealthy, if it's about, you know, stability, stomping all over Hong Kong and causing capital flight and all these kinds of things does not seem to be actually a great idea to me as a real politic issue. Right. So I think from China's perspective, Sovereignty comes before prosperity. It, you know, the country when when China is weak in any way, their history is that other countries come in and try to break them up. Right? This is how parts of China became colonies. You know, the Japanese invaded China. Um, so in their mind, they're like, you let Hong Kong go, then Xinjiang goes, then Tibet goes, and then you know, before you know it, foreigners are you know back at at our doorstep dictating you know, how we can run our country. And so I think in their view, the sovereignty issue is more important than anything. And of course, you know, we think the heavier hand that that they, you know, uh, wield in that case, the bigger problems that they have. But I think their view is that historically for them internally, when they crack down, then things go back to being stable. Um, I don't know if you heard the defense minister, the Chinese defense minister got asked a question about Tiananmen at Shangri-La last year. And to my surprise, he actually answered it. And he said, you know, yeah, we cracked down and look at where we are today. So I would call that a success. Yeah. Right? So that's how they see the history. I mean, I know we're very, you know, rightly so, we're critical of those approaches, but I think they think that they're very effective um, and that any cost in terms of image and other things will be temporary and everyone will forget about it, you know, in a couple of weeks. Um, all right, so let's let's... I want to talk about the larger region in a second, but I want to go back to the institution stuff for a minute. 
what what was what was your take on America or the Trump administration, if you're allowed to speak about these things, pulling out of WHO? Because it seems to me just bad timing and a bad. I mean, I'm all in favor of criticizing WHO. I think they screwed up royally, and that they're a cautionary tale about what can happen when China overly influences an international organization or institution. But the it to me, it's analogous to TPP. Yeah. You know, pulling out of it, it was actually good for China and pulling out of right. WHO is good for China. I, I don't quite. And that's see that to me is an example of dumb hawkery of sort of pandering to talk shows here. about oh, yeah, we really stuck it to China. We pulled out. But that actually makes China more powerful and more influential. But what is your take on all that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Even if you're you know, you're not a China expert or you don't follow these issues at all. A good rule of thumb is if China is happy that we did something it probably was not in our best interest to do it, <laughs> right? If yeah. they're like, oh, like, uh, you know, too bad. I guess the United States is going to pull off all these institutions. I mean, their whole goal is to be able to have the influence over the agendas of these institutions. And if the only thing standing in the way of that is the United States, I mean, the United States got a coalition together, the United Nations, to fight in the Korean War only because the Soviet Union didn't show up to the vo- vote and boycott, right? Right. So this is exactly what the United States is doing. We're like, we're not going to show up to to voice our concerns or we're not going to show up to vote. And all that does is let China um, do what China wants to do and have more legitimacy in doing it because we've created this system in which international institutions give countries legitimacy in their activities and their actions, right? And so now China gets to leverage those institutions for the purpose. So, you know, I get the frustration of, you know, a lot of these institutions being ineffective. Um, but my view is that, just like China is trying to, you know, get their own people to be the head of all the committees and, you know, shape the direction of those institutions, the United States should be doing that as well. And we should be building new institutions because a lot of these, you know, were built, you know, decades and decades ago after World War II. It's no surprise that they can't cover, you know, cyber warfare and they don't know how to deal with drones or, or what have you. The world has changed so much that I think we need to be engaging in institution building, not destroying. Yeah, so that, that raises something I, I've been I've written on and off about for for years. Um, it comes and goes as an idea. Um, it's not specifically oriented to China, but it would be that would be one of the major flashpoints is creating a league of democracies or a concert of democracies, some international institution that has a higher standard for entry other than existence, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, the way you get into the UN is be a recognizable nation state with mm-hmm. some borders and something that passes for a government, and it doesn't matter whether you brutalize your people, whether you are read by, led by some minority faction that brutalizes a majority faction. All these things can, you can, don't keep you from getting into the UN. And maybe if there was sort of a democratic you know, broader than just NATO kind of thing, but, you know, NATO would obviously be part of it um, where you actually had an institution, a global institution that didn't replace the UN, but had more more moral authority than the UN and that you had more consensus about what, how nations should behave internally and on the international stage, you might actually be leading by example in a way and get some nations at the margins to change their behavior because they would like to belong to such a thing. We're, 
Where do you come down on something like that? So I think it would depend on the actual um, context in which we have the institution. So I don't I don't know if democracies is always the best sort of umbrella term for it. So just to get, you know, for example, I think Singapore is a really great partner of the United States. They're not like a multi-party democracy. Um, it's about having certain accountability and it's about being transparent. On the other hand, a country like India, which is a democracy, also has a lot of illiberal tendencies, right? So in certain issue areas, it might not be legitimate for India to be a leader on sure. those. And it might be more legitimate to have Singapore be a leader on those. So I get your point. I think it's important, kind of like the EU or the WTO, that there's some sort of standards. Now, the question is, you know, if you have an institution that's about human rights, then the standard should be about human rights. If you have an institution that's about, you know, uh, behavior in outer space, maybe it's only space-faring nations that are part of the institution. I, I, I do think having those standards to encourage countries to try to improve in certain areas is important. Um, but, you know, I just don't know, like for economic development, it might be the case that democracies have better economic development practices, but there also might be some others that do a good job that aren't democracies or some democracies that actually don't do a good job. Um, and so I don't know if I would use that as like the overarching uh, determining factor. Also, you know, just as a political science thing, I always found it interesting, you know, democracy for political scientists, Japan wasn't considered a democracy until the 90s because they never had a transfer of power from one party to another because they had the same right. party win year after year. So then you also get into like, oh, do you just have to have elections? And then we're talking about all these, you know, African countries that have, you know, maybe a dictator has like a fake election. So, right. so I do think you're right. Like we do need standards for participation, but those standards should be in the context of what the institution is trying to accomplish. Yeah, Mexico also basically was a one-party state for a crazy long time as well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. no, I I, I take your point. um, And, you know, I'm not a fetishist about democracy qua democracy. For me, it would be, you know, in terms of, I mean, this is just purely a marketing problem. It'd be great if we could do it like comic books and have the Legion of Doom and put all the bad countries in that one. And, you know, and then the coalition of the, the Justice League and have all the good guys in the other one. But you know, your point about India is a good one, and your point about Singapore is a good one. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I think for human happiness, ru- proper rule of law is more important than democracy. You know, you know, and I see it in sort of the Anglo-American tradition of what, what I mean by rule of law. Um, but you know, fair courts, that kind of thing, right. uh, human rights. You know, democracy doesn't guarantee those things. It's just better at providing them than a lot of other systems, but those things are more important than a bunch of people voting. And, but the problem is, is that on the international level, it seems to me that, that we don't, we just don't have another good word for that than democracy. And so for someone like India, I agree, they got a lot of liberal tendencies and they're getting more liberal by the day, but they would want to belong to something like that. So maybe that would be a way of sort of encouraging better behavior on their part. Anyway, I didn't, but for like for what, health stuff, obviously, you would want a lot of countries that aren't democracies to yeah. be a part of organizations with health because, it, you know, it affects everyone. That's why, like the WHO, you really do want sure. something that includes everyone. And when it comes to economics, obviously, you want China to be involved because China has such an impact on the global economy. So, so, but then, if, you know, I do think we need those standards, but it does get complicated in terms of 
um, you know, the best practices, like who should be a part of it, who shouldn't. But the bottom line is, you know, it's good for us as Americans, for the United States to make those decisions and not to leave those decisions about what institutions exist, who gets to participate in them, who gets to have influence to China. Yeah, no, I think that's entirely right. You know, and another criteria other than health and democracy, rule of law, is the ability to get really good food delivered to you at home. And that's why I want to talk about DoorDash. Okay, of course, I'm, I'm kind of joking, although, you know, there was this Tom Friedman theory in the um, 1990s that uh, no, no two countries that had McDonald's went to war with each other. And then the, uh, um, the stuff in the Balkans happened, and that theory went out the window. But I do think a new broad coalition of nations that have DoorDash would only improve, improve the world. Between the never-ending laundry cycles and incoming emails, you've got plenty on your to-do list. Give yourself one less thing to worry about and let DoorDash take care of your next meal. So it's funny, my daughter, much to my chagrin, has decided that this week she wants to, uh, that this current week she wants to be vegan, just to see what it's like. And um, it is not in the combined, well, it's weird. I was about to say it's not in the combined Goldberg-Gavora DNA to go vegan, but the actual only existing instantiation or uh, manifestation of truly combined Goldberg-Gavora DNA is my daughter, and she went vegan. So let's just say culturally it is not what Goldbergs and Gavoras do is go vegan, but and it created real problems for figuring out what to do for dinner, but DoorDash kind of solved that because you could just search for different vegan places or places that have vegan meals. And uh, a lot of those places actually have um, food for carnivores as well. And so it was a real um, real help this week. DoorDash, if you didn't know, is the app that brings you food you're craving or that your daughter demands right now, right to your door. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop-off setting. With over 300,000 partners in the U.S., Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can support your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. Many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local restaurant, and your food will be left at your door. It's not just that they're still open for delivery. A lot of places are open for delivery for the first time because of all of this, and DoorDash is adding new restaurants all the time. So right now, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when they download the DoorDash app and enter code REMNANT. That's $5 off your order and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter promo code REMNANT. Don't forget, that's code REMNANT for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. We thank DoorDash for their continuing support of the REMNANT podcast. All right, so let's, let's, let's sort of move around the, the board a little bit. What, um, what is China's actual attitude towards North Korea? You know, you hear a lot of people talking about how, uh, you know, President Trump likes to say, China can get North Korea to do whatever it wants and all these kinds of things. And I, I, I don't think that's true. Um, um, but it obviously has more influence over North Korea than, than we do, or even Canada. So um, what, what, does, what does China want from North Korea? I mean, is, is it just that they like having 
an impoverished authoritarian buffer between it and South Korea, and they don't want South Korea to be unified, so the status quo is, is good enough? What, what, what is their strategic view of the country? So actually, this has changed, too, in the past 15 years or so. Xi Jinping himself has stated that the ideal future for the Korean Peninsula is a reunified Korea under South Korean control. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Does he mean that, South, Yeah, under South Korean control. Uh-huh. The Chinese hate the North Koreans. I mean, like, I can't, I don't know, like, what the parallel is, you know, for us. I mean, and if you see, before Xi Jinping met with Kim, and he only did that because President Trump was going to meet with Kim, right? For uh-huh. years and years and years, the two leaders had never met. They even say that the ambassador in North Korea had never met Kim, uh, the Chinese ambassador. The North Koreans consistently test uh, weapons uh, on special holidays, that really upset mm-hmm. the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> they do it in areas close to China that can pollute, you know, China with like nuclear material, which upsets them. I mean, they have a, let's just say, a very hostile relationship. When I talk to uh-huh. the Chinese military, they talk about fighting in a second Korean war. It's not to support North Korea. They think they have to fight the North Koreans to get into Korea to participate in the war. So what does all that mean? Like, what is their, what is the, then why aren't they being more helpful? Their main thing that they think about when they think about North Korea is geopolitical competition with the United States. And so they're asking themselves, what is good for the United States and what is good for us? Now, should they spend their time, effort, resources, potentially even fighting a war if the outcome is going to be a reduced threat against the United States, right? So the United States now has more resources to focus on other stuff and potentially a stronger uh, South, South Korea that is a U.S. ally. So this increases U.S. power and influence on the Korean Peninsula. And this is exactly what the United States, this is what China doesn't want, right? Their whole goal is to reduce the U.S. military role in Asia, not increase it. And so I think what has happened, you know, the United States, we refuse to, to promise China, for example, that if North Korea didn't exist, we would, you know, our troops would go home. I think if China, if this was actually credible, if China thought, you know, the United States is going to abrogate this treaty and they're going to go home if North Korea doesn't exist, then they would, you know, be much less concerned about an in, in, instability of North Korea type of scenario. In their mind, the worst case is just that you know, they push North Korea and they don't think that works to denuclearize. So the United States says, we want you to push them economically. China thinks that's never going to get them to denuclearize. It might destabilize them. And then, you know, you win in the end. So like, why are we going to help you out with that? So I think if they thought the future scenario was to their benefit, not to the U.S. benefit, then they would take a much firmer hand against North Korea. Um. I'm interested by this, how much you said you can't find an analogy for how much they hate the North Koreans. Is it a, is it a sort of a feeling at the cultural ground level? I mean, is it like how some Europeans feel about uh, Roma? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. is it? No, um, I think it's more. And so this is now I'm like, this is not my area, but because I don't sure. work, but maybe like maybe like U.S. frustration with it's like partnership with Pakistan. Uh huh would be uh, like, you know, just like people who work on this constantly. They're not like, oh, like this is our best friend. Right. They're like, there are reasons why we have to keep this strategic relationship. And it's very frustrating. I, w- I guess I guess I would say maybe maybe hate was a strong. They just do not like them. And they're very frustrated because they think like, oh, like these North Koreans, like, why don't you just reform and open up like we did? 
make a lot of money and call it a day. Like, why are you doing all this crazy stuff? And so every couple of years, China is hopeful. You know, they Kim went on a Southern tour, you know, every couple of years they bring in North Korean leaders and they're like, look at what China's accomplished. Like, if you follow in our footsteps, you could accomplish this too. And they're hopeful of, of North Korean reform, just like we're hopeful in denuclearization. And we're mm-hmm. both wrong year after year. Um, okay. And then there's, I want to save the most, because this, this is how this podcast works. We just anti-pander to what is the newsiest, most important stuff. So we'll save India and the border clash stuff for last. What is the relationship between China and and Russia these days? Mm. Um, is it 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 is it one of mutual respect? Is it one of oh God, Russia is sort of the sick man of Asia to a certain extent, but we got to deal with them. Um, how do they see it? So, I think I mentioned er, like early on in the podcast. You know, one of the most important thing is for experts and scholars to be constantly reevaluating their views in light of new evidence. And I have to say, the China Russia relationship is one uh, that confuses me. So, so a lot of people, what they'll they'll list out a bunch of numbers, right? They'll be like, Putin and Xi met this met this many times. They say nice things about each other. China buys weapons from Russia. Um, they do joint exercises together, you know, but this has been the case for a very long time, right? China buying weapons, doing joint exercises. So the question is, is there anything new? And the big question for geopolitics is, is China for the first time trying to like build a coalition against the United States? And is Russia going to be a part of that coalition? Now, unfortunately, Jonah, I've just started this major research project to look (laughs) into this question because I feel like what I've read isn't sufficient. Like basically what I read is like, they're doing a bunch of stuff and we don't like it. But that's not yeah. sufficient to really tell me, are they are they cooperating? There seems to be a difference in my mind between deconfliction, coordination, and cooperation. It's one thing to say, like, we won't get in your way. It's another thing to say, like, we'll say something nice about what you're doing at the UN. That's very different than saying that, like, China is going to support militarily Russia's goals in in, in Europe and Russia is going to support China's goals in, in Asia. For a very long time, I basically dismissed this topic because I assumed, and I think incorrectly now, that there had to be symmetry to the relationship, right? That China mm-hmm. would only help Russia if Russia helped China to an equal degree and vice versa. And I, and I, from what I know about China is they have no desire to support Russian goals at all, especially mm-hmm. in Europe, because they think that they are illegitimate and ill-advised. And so I thought China's not going to support Russia. That means Russia's not going to support China. But then over the summer, Russia and China did this joint air patrol over the East mm-hmm. China Sea that suggested, wait a minute, Russia might be willing to support Chinese goals even if China doesn't reciprocate. And that's what concerned me, because all of a sudden, there's a possibility for higher Russian military support in, in Asia. And again, I'm not talking about like, you know, full-fledged alliance, but I think even like we talked about the Taiwan scenario, even if you have one squadron of Russian fighters involved in that scenario, that severe that seriously complicates US planning. And so yeah, yeah. so now I'm I'm looking more deeply into this question to see if there has been a qualitative change in the relationship. Um but you know, for me from what I've read so far, I don't have enough data to make a determination either way. This is like the the professorial side of me. It's like, it's going to take me like a year and then I'll be comfortable saying a sentence <laughs> one way or the other. But, you know, one of the data points that I do find interesting, you know, when we focus so much on Russia and people are like, you know, Russia's the threat or China's the threat, you know, Russia spends a third on their military what China spends. 
right? And our NATO allies spend like seven to eight times more than our Asian allies do. So this is why I'm very concerned about stability and deterrence in Asia, much more so than I'm concerned about Russia, which is obviously a disruptor, a revisionist power, um, but they don't have the same capabilities to actually be a great power that China does. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that always seems to be part of the reason why Russia, I mean, some of it is, I think, lag, you know, a, sort of a, a lagging indicator of, uh, uh, you know, Putin's a KGB guy. There's a lot of continuity with this sort of undermining institutions in the West that mm-hmm. sort of going to your point about how you could change the regime in China and a lot of the things they want to do, they still want to do. Russia has been wanting to undermine Western institutions and Western alliances for a long time for deep-seated historical reasons and perceptions. And you could change out from a Soviet regime to uh, whatever the hell they have now. And there's still that sort of muscle memory to do that kind of stuff. Um, But it does seem like China wants to be... um, I mean, let me put it this way. If... If you're a hegemon, if they want to be the, the the true hegemon in Asia, and most of, I believe most of Russia by landmass is in Asia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that should ha- that should be scary to scarier to Russia in certain ways than to us, and yet you get no sense of that, you know, at least to, to, the, to the level I read about all of these things. Right. I mean, so there's sort of two things to point out also because you're listing some of the differences that, that I find interesting. The first is my Russian expert friends tell me that, you know, Putin gets um, gets a lot of points when he's in conflict with the United States. Right. Like that's a popular thing domestically. In China, it's the opposite. Xi Jinping with elites, but also with the Chinese domestic public, when things are bad with the United States, you know, he gets in trouble. So that also uh-huh. tells you, you know, they really do value the relationship. I think much more um, with the United States maybe than Russia does. And then this question of like, shouldn't it bother Russia? Now, I am also very interested in this question. I was in a dialogue with some um, influential Chinese party members on Zoom uh, last week, which I was trying to get some answers to this Russia situation. And and then when and we were talking about the Belt and Road Initiative, and I specifically asked like, like, you know, wh- what have the Russians said to you about this? Have they, you know, responded in any way to your presence in Central Asia? Do they seem concerned? Like, is there any rivalry here? Um, and and even though we had like 15 minutes left, the moderator was like, it looks like we're out of time and no one can answer that question. So, <laughs> so I don't have any, uh, I don't have any insights for you. I mean, I guess all I can say is, you know, a lot of times with strategy, we think countries should feel certain things that they don't feel. It's very frustrating. Yeah. But to be good strategists, we have to kind of take their interests and their views as a starting point and, and yeah. move on and move on from it. And of course, you know, see if there's any changes like there was in the Cold War when we noticed that China and Russia looked like they were pulling apart. And we leveraged that to normalize relations with China and form an alliance with China against Russia. Um you know, that's obviously hard given the current administration's position that we are competing with both simultaneously. But I, I do think it, it is to our benefit, you know, to keep those two countries from coordinating and cooperating. But that doesn't, but we have to be careful because the Chinese know that. And so lately in dialogues and in government interactions, whenever we do something they don't like, they're always like, well, maybe we'll get closer to the Russians. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they, you know, I think they're using that as a strategy now. So we also have to be careful not to be like overly 
panicked about it and, and let the Chinese get away with stuff because we're afraid that they're going to get closer to the Russians. Um, all right. So before one last one, before we get to India, um, what about poor Japan? Like, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, the Chinese have grievances towards Japan. Um, but Japan is not what it once was, but they are for sure an ally of ours. Um, what does all this mean? What does China's ambitions mean for Japan? And also, what should we be doing vis-a-vis Japan to make sure the worst doesn't come about? The the area where China and Japan would come into conflict is in the East China Sea, where they both have territorial claims over um, some islands there, the Senkakus and Chinese and the Diaoyu um, for uh, the Chinese. Um this is still a military capabilities issue. I mean, I think in addition to being able to potentially take those islands, as you mentioned, because of the historical animosity between the two sides, there are these additional benefits to fighting Japan um, that are hard to counter. So this makes it you know, even more important that China thinks that they would not succeed because there are additional benefits to fighting Japan. This also means that there'd be huge domestic costs if the Japanese won, right? Yeah, so I think yeah. actually... Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership is probably very cautious uh, when it comes to its, its dealings with Japan, just because it can't lose face in that way. And also in recent, you know, weeks and months, you know, Xi Jinping has recognized that the economic relationship with Japan is important and they've tried to smooth some stuff over. Um, I mean, I think the bottom line is that China is going to want Japan to, you know, uh, to accommodate its preferences in a lot of areas and Japan's going to have to make a determination that that's the bottom line with all countries in the region. I've been arguing that the U S policy, what we should be offering countries in the region in the world is sovereignty actually not, you know, you have to side with the United States and this and the other, but we want to create a world in which you have the power to make decisions that you think are best for your country. And that's not what China wants, right? China wants the power to determine what countries do. I think that it, that should be the message coming from the United States. And unfortunately, historically, that has not always been our practice. So, you know, now we to, to show that we're different than China, we also have to act differently. But especially when it comes to our allies and partners, you know, the United States does not tell Japan what to do. And so it is, that's something that these countries might lose. Um, if they don't feel like they have the protection of the United States. Um, I mean, I know Japan has made some grudging moves towards lifting a lot of its restrictions on militarizing and all of that, but it's, mm-hmm. it hasn't exactly thrown its thrown itself head, you know, with both feet into doing that. Um, do you think that would be in Japan's or our interest if they did it? You know, my friend, the late Charles Krauthammer was always talked about maybe we should just encourage Japan to nuclearize, um, which has all sorts of issues. Um, you know, but what do you think about all that? So again, with the, with the nuke situation, you know, Japan is a very small country, yeah. uh, you know, an islands with no strategic depth. I do not think they want to play a nuclear brinksmanship game with China, you know? Um, so I, I, you know, push comes to shove. I just don't, I just don't know if you know the presence of nuclear weapons on Japan would be sufficient, right? Because then you also have missile defense, second strike. You know, China could be confident in its ability to protect itself. That being said, um, a lot of a lot of Japan's um, 
restrictions has not prevented them from building a, a very serious military, right? The restrictions are on how to use that military and, and in particular, how far from their shores they can project power. So when it comes to the defense of Japan and the defense of, of these islands that I mentioned before, you know, Japan is in a very strong position. And that's why China kind of, you know, doesn't really mess with them in the same way that they might mess with some of this, the Southeast Asian um, claimants. One area that might make a difference, and this is less about the defense of Japan, but more about Taiwan, is whether um, Japan would fight with the United States in defense of Taiwan. Now, to date, you know, this is not the United States hasn't really even been able to count on being able to use its own assets from South Korea or Japan in the defense of Taiwan, right? Those assets are for the defense of those countries. So the kind of first step, you know, I'm sure that there are internal discussions about this all the time, is to get some sort of agreement that we could actually operate out of Japan. Like during the Vietnam War, we were allowed to, you know, rest in Japan and Japan was used as a logistics hub, but we weren't allowed to project offensive power from there. And that also wasn't quite as useful because Vietnam is, is, is farther from Japan. But that would make a big difference. And that, you know, I'm not an expert on, on Japanese constitutional law, but it's my understanding that um, there are restrictions on that, you know, currently uh, letting the United States project power out of Japan and then even a step forward if Japan was going to fight with the United States in defense of Taiwan, I think that would um, very much increase the deterrent against China. Okay. What the hell is going on with India? <sighs> yeah, so this is another area where I go, like, go back and forth on. Um, it's very strange, this India thing for a number of reasons. So I guess what I'm going to do is just sort of lay out my confusion. Uh, more okay, than actually, it, it would be a benefit because I can't, it's one of these things I actually literally can't do. Can uh, you just yeah. lay out the 101, what in fact is happening yeah, before you confused. try to come yeah. up with an explanation for it? Yeah. So basically, you know, China and India have a border dispute. Um, and they've had a border dispute since the founding of the PRC. Now, this is one area where I actually think that Chinese, not only the Chinese sort of position and claims, but also how they've handled the border historically has been much more reasonable than India's. So I'm not going to give you like, you know, but let's just go back to the 1950s very briefly. <laughs> I mean, China's position was was basically that any treaties signed by the colonial powers were not valid. Right. The communists came into power and they're like, we're not going to respect the fact that the, the British took over part of our territory, then signed a treaty with you. You have to sign a treaty with us. So they actually, you know, resolved the majority of their territorial disputes just by, you know, so, by signing new treaties of their boundaries. And in many cases, they conceded more territory to the other side than they got and, and all as well. They wanted to do the same with India. They wanted to have a conversation about where the border was and have India sign it. And the Indians were like, we don't know what you're talking about. There is you know, no dispute. And the Indians kept on pushing, like China's pushing in the South China Sea right now. India kept on pushing forward, moving into this disputed area. And that's how you got the Sino-Indian War of 1962, which is the, Ch the Chinese were basically like, we've told you over and over and over again to stop like these incursions. And now we kind of want to put a stop to it. So there's a big part of this history because on the Indian side, um, uh, the Chinese attack was was uh, a surprise. The Indians thought that they were friends of China. There's a number of reasons for this. Nehru, who was the leader of India at the time, you know, they supported China's UN bid over Taiwan. Um, they, you know, they supported Chinese occupation of Tibet. It, you know, basically gave up their interests there, and so they were like, "We're friends with China." And then all of a sudden, China attacked them, and so they felt very betrayed, but also like taken aback, like you know, 
now they're very paranoid. I guess the bottom line is all of this suggests in India forever, they've always been like, you know, China is coming for us. In 1962, they thought the Chinese were going to try to make it all the way to Delhi and take over the whole country, right? They had this like paranoia about it. The Chinese have never really cared about the border, not in the same way as the other territorial disputes. So if you're in China, for example, you know, there's all this propaganda about the Vietnamese and Taiwan and Hong Kong. And then you ask the average like Chinese person about the war that they fought with India. And they're like, what, what war? You know, when I, for my book, wrote a whole chapter on this conflict, it's like, you know, the number of Chinese sources I could find about this war, it's just not a huge part of their narrative. Hmm. And it's strange because they, they completely won. Right. Yeah, it's really Indian, so you, you thought they would they would pay much more attention. So for me, for a very long time, it's like they don't really care about this border. You know, they just want to keep things as is um, every once in a while. And when, when they need to show the Indians like to deter them, you know, maybe they do some of these incursions, but it's very minor. But now all of a sudden, right, like they are the incursions are much more frequent. They're in some areas that aren't even under dispute. So. so and why and why would they want to do this now when like all eyes are on China about being more aggressive and assertive during COVID? So part of me, you know, I've argued that that China does have a history of being concerned that other countries are going to think they're weak. And so that they, right. they preempt by being right. aggressive in order to enhance their deterrent. Now, originally, that's what I thought they were doing with India with some of these incursions. But then, you know, doing this in areas that aren't even under dispute that doesn't make sense with that explanation. Um, and I don't buy the rogue commander type of explanation because this seems too systematic. And again, I've never bought this explanation because, you know, in the United States, if a military member disobeys an order, we get court-martialed. And you're, and you're telling me in a place like China where they have like, until very recently had hard labor camps for like misdemeanors, like officers are just disobeying orders all the time. Like, right, I, right. you know, I just, I just never bought it. So, so a lot of people, you know, on Twitter and stuff who, who, who are India experts, you know, are arguing that China is trying to make a, a bid for a new like territorial status quo. Um, and I can't, I don't find any, I can't say that that is an impossible explanation. Because um, I just, I just don't really, but I don't understand why China would want to do that at all. A lot of these areas are just like so unpopulated and stuff like why China wants to do that. And especially now. Um so it is, it is a big mystery to me. Like, I get why they're assertive in the South China Sea. I get their position on the Korean Peninsula. Like, I get what they're doing in the East China Sea. All that makes sense to me. But this border stuff, it's, it's really strange when you understand, you know, what their interests are from their point of view. Yeah. All right. So I know you have uh, sleeping children in the house, and we were approaching the uh, <laughs> window when they arise and, and become regional hegemons. Um, so I don't want to keep you too much longer, but this does raise, you know, it's sort of where we began. Um, I mean, as you were saying, and as you hear from a lot of people that you get a lot of buy-in for the regime when the economy is growing, right? I mean, that's sort of the central argument for the communist regime for the last three decades is, look, they're delivering prosperity and, and people will put up with a lot, particularly you know, and this is something that really is important for Americans to understand. It's not just that they're delivering prosperity; is that they are delivering people from massive poverty in the space of one lifetime. You know, and that's 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 a huge delivery. I mean, it's it's one thing if an American administration delivers four percent growth, which would be huge. 
It's another thing when millions of people have running water for the first time or cars for the first time. And that's just, that's a qualitative difference. So I get that. But now, you know, our colleague Derek Scissors, you know, starts from the premise that any economic indicators that China releases aren't true. And then you have to figure out how untrue they are. Um, But I think just common sense would tell you, given what we've gone through with our economy, what Europe's gone through with their economy, with the pandemic, China has to be suffering pretty massively from, you know, economically from all of this, in part because they're so export-driven and we're just not buying stuff right now. Um, Does China become much more dangerous? I mean, this is a classic thing for, for authoritarian regimes is when they can't deliver economic goods, they deliver nationalism, they deliver, you know, uh, national pride kind of things. They start problems to take attention away. It's how Putin stayed in power for so long. Um, how dangerous is it if, in fact, the Chinese economy is, is really suffering for the first time in a long time? So I think the first thing when you say suffering is you have to think in the minds of the average Chinese person, like compared to what, right? What would be better? Would a different regime ha- be able to handle this better? Um, maybe we're suffering, but we're suffering less than they're suffering in the United States. So even though I think there was this understanding for many years that China had to reach a certain level of growth or the Chinese people, you know, would revolt. I think it's much more nuanced than that. It's the question of like, you know, they have this tacit agreement with the party that the party improves their lives and in return, you know, they'll continue to support the party. And because China doesn't really have civil society, they don't have a lot of other alternatives, then maybe they look around the world and they say, do we want to be, you know, how is the United States handling COVID? Not so well. You know, how are other countries doing it? So so how much pressure they're under, I think the first thing is it, it, it maybe not as much pressure as we think, even if the economy slows. The second thing is one of the reasons why the economy um, isn't as big of a deal as something that you kind of alluded to, which is when Xi Jinping came into power, he shifted the source of the party legitimacy away from being merely about economic growth to also being about China's position on the world stage. A lot of people, you know, they'll say it hush hush, you know, not publicly. They did not like Hu Jintao. He was seen as too cautious, too weak, and countries pushed China around. And now countries don't push China around anymore, right? Because Xi Jinping, you know, stands up. Um, stands up for um, the Chinese people on the international stage. So the Chinese people like that. Like they like all of a sudden that it seems like China has more power and influence everywhere. Um, and so that is a big part of their legitimacy. Now, does that mean that the econ and external are connected in a way that you have this kind of diversionary, you know, tactic? Usually, I think at the extremes, the answer is no. Like if there's actual instability in China, like you have people on the streets, the party's concerned about their future, they're going to they're going to hunker down. They're going to pull in. They're not going to want people on the streets for any reason, even if it's in support of the party. They're going to want to focus on getting things good at home. The question is, you know, when it's not an extreme scenario like that, like it is now, and there's just maybe some general murmurings of unhappiness, I mean, maybe that's the opportunism that we're seeing along the Sino-Indian border or something like that, that, you know, at least, at least Xi Jinping can show that they're strong in some ways. Um, I tend to think that, you know, it, it, China thinks that it's weak and constantly acts out of these insecurities. And I think that is probably the most likely explanation that they think that other countries think they're weak because of COVID. And so they have to overplay their hand. Um, but Xi Jinping has always been, he's a different type of leader. Um, and so I can't completely, you know, rule out that he would also take advantage 
of this of this scenario to gain an upper hand in some of these areas that could then make the Chinese people very happy. Okay. Um, Oriana Mastro, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, this was great. Um, and uh, um, you're heading off to Stanford in the nearish future. Uh, so congrats on the new gig. Yeah, thank um, you. It was great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so Oriana has left the screen. I don't know. We don't have rooms anymore. We don't have studios. Um, and uh, I got to go write uh, the Wednesday uh, G file, which um, is only available to members of the dispatch community. And it's just one of the many reasons why you'll become a better person if you uh, become a paid member of our community. Um, and uh, other than that, I, I think Oriana is really interesting. She's really smart. She knows lots of things. Um, and I have to say, I'm a little, I'm a little more skeptical of uh, the permanence of the authoritarian regime in China. I think that there are reasons to believe that um, there's a certain ratchet effect to, um, it's not teleology, it's not foreordained or any of that kind of stuff, but um, it's more difficult to reverse um, sort of uh, notions of democratic accountability once you, um, once you allow for them. And so I have no doubt that China could go to become even more authoritarian and all the rest, but that creates its own sort of catalytic effect. But uh, I will have to obviously defer to her. And at the very least, I think um, where I would agree with her entirely is that my or anybody's speculative hopes for the flourishing of, of freedom and the rule of law in China is not what we should base our cold um, calculating uh, national security strategy on. Uh, hope is not a plan. And you have to assume uh, that China will behave in its interests in ways that are counter to our interests and act accordingly. Um, but maybe every now and then take advantage of opportunities when you see them um, to release the sweet, sweet bacteria of freedom um, in the Middle Kingdom. So uh, beyond that, uh, thanks everybody for listening. And um, um, I'm trying to remember there was something else I was supposed to tell you people but I can't remember what it is, um, so I'm not going to tell you. And I'm going to pretend that it's something really important, and you'll just have to tune in on Friday or Saturday to find out what it is. Um, and that's when I'll see you next time. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.